Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles with me to the 19th chapter of Luke's Gospel? Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read verses uh, 28 through 44 for us this morning. Uh, I'll pray for us and then we'll get started. But this is God's Word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And Jesus said, and they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near he saw, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Even a haunting word such as this, we want to do something in our hearts. And so I pray that you would do that, that your spirit would fall and that he would take our hearts and that he would shape them in uh, the direction of your son, that we would begin to look more and more like him after this today. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we enter into Holy Week and we do that via this day, which is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is, of course, like we said, the day that Jesus finally entered into Jerusalem. After three years of ministering all over different parts of Israel, he finally makes his way to Jerusalem. And he comes because at the the time that he's going there is Passover. And Jesus knows, and it's common in that day, for people to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover. And so he knew that He would be there, but also other pilgrims and visitors would be there as well. And so because of that, because Jerusalem is going to be populated, because a lot of people are going to be there, Jesus stages a demonstration. Or better yet, He stages like a mini play, a small piece of theater that's going to be rich and and replete with all different kind of symbols, right? And so Jesus... I was telling David this week, I don't know any better way to say this than he aggressively borrows somebody else's donkey and comes into, comes into Jerusalem riding on it, which fulfills 
what Solomon did thousands upon thousands of years earlier when he went in to Jerusalem. But it's a borrowed donkey that he's showing up on. It's not his. And as he starts making his way down the Mount of Olives, the disciples take their coats and they throw them off and they put them on the donkey and put them in front of Jesus, giving him a kind of uh, first century red carpet entrance, right? And with that, they begin to declare all of these different things from the Old Testament. They begin to sing songs that their families had sang for thousands of years, declaring that Jesus was something very different. He was a Messiah. He's the King of Israel. All of the hopes and dreams of Israel are coming true. And so their exuberance knew no bounds at all. But there's only one problem, right? And that's the lead actor happens to also be the director. And the wires got crossed. And the lead actor's not playing his part in the way everybody else in the play thinks he ought to. Because see, he's weeping. He's crying. He's not riding into into Jerusalem with smug and quiet satisfaction in the way that we think a leader would. He's certainly not singing along with the rest of his disciples. He's crying. And he's crying because, I mean, all of Israel's dreams, they really are coming true. They totally are. The problem is, they're just not coming true in the way that they expected. Israel didn't know the time of their visitation, and so the coming of their Messiah takes a haunting turn. One that it shouldn't have taken, but it takes that haunting turn. Something unbelievable is coming down from the Mount of Olives, but basically everybody's looking the other way. The whole event, if you just came to Luke chapter 19 and you read this event straight through just in the morning by yourself or sometime if you took the time to do it this afternoon, it can feel quirky, right? It can feel like just this quirky narrative in the middle of an otherwise great story, suitable maybe for kids to parade up and down in front of a church for, but maybe not suitable to leap the gap of 2,000 years and land into your lap and transform you, right? It's a quirky event. I heard a, uh, this has been 10 or 15 years ago, I heard a New Testament scholar tell a story about um, this time in his life when he was, I don't know what he was doing in school or something, but the local church he was attending, the leadership of it, asked him to uh, teach an elementary school, uh, elementary school children Sunday school class. And as they approached, he said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And so as they approached Holy Week, he decided what he wanted to do was just kind of explore with the children, just ask them the simple question, why did Jesus come to die? Why did Jesus have to die? But he didn't want it to be teachy, right? He wanted to really hear from them. And so he takes a bunch of sheets of paper and he says, I'm going to ask you this question. I want you to write your answers down, and then you're going to give them back to me, and we'll see what we got, right? We'll write up all the different answers on the whiteboard. And so he does that, and he gets the answers back, and he was blown away at the diversity of opinion that these elementary school students had, right? Some of them said Jesus died because the Jews were angry at him. Some of them said 
Jesus died because he scared the Romans. Some of them said Jesus died because I'm a sinner and I need somebody to save me from from my sins. Some of them said that God is furious and angry at sin and he has to pour his wrath out somewhere and it had to be his son. And so as the scholar collected all these and read them out loud, he realized for the first time in his life that the diversity of opinion that existed just in this elementary school children classroom was unbelievable. He had never realized that you could get that and that in their own way, each of those children was right. And he said, I knew at that moment that when Jesus walked down off the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, he walked in to a perfect storm, the likes of which the world had never seen. What I want to do this morning is to try to take a step back and explain to you that storm. To show you the different angles of things that are coming at Jesus that conspired to hurdle Him closer and closer to Good Friday. And I think if you wanted a tagline about what all these stories conspire to be, it's just they're all stories about a dream that had to die so that a new and greater one could be reborn or could be born. And then we'll ask what I just said. How does this word leap the gap? How does it span the cultural differences of thousands of years and halfway across the ocean? How do we get here and how does the word leap the gap? How does it come and fall in our laps and change us? And so that's what we're going to do. Now to do that, I want to do just talk history if we can very briefly. It's just a very brief Very simple history lesson, but I think in doing so, you'll get the story behind the story, which will give you a sense of the story that we're trying to understand or whatever. The thing that you have to understand in the context of the story of Palm Sunday is the relationship between Israel and Rome. Rome looms large in the New Testament, but it would be super, super easy to miss that Because the New Testament doesn't talk about what a looming presence Rome actually had. It's mentioned at the beginning of the Gospels, right? We know that a a census has to be collected. And so, you know, that's why um, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. And then it's mentioned at the end of the Gospels where we learn that Pilate is going to judge Jesus. Then you find it in the book of Acts a few times and maybe... You could say that really the book of Revelation is about Rome. But if you just add up the quantity or whatever, add up the different times that Rome is mentioned, you would be fooled because Rome does actually play a massive role in the New Testament. Now, in terms of Rome, up until just 30 years before Jesus' birth, Rome was just a very simple republic. But... With the ascendancy of Julius Caesar and then his subsequent assassination, things began to shift dramatically. And after Julius Caesar was assassinated, Rome was thrown into a brutal, gruesome, long civil war. And from that war emerged as the leader of Rome, Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian. And with Octavian the fate of Rome began to shift dramatically. From the small seed of republic grew the great oak of empire, and everything all over the ancient world began to change. Rome set its sights on the Middle East to expand its territory, and that 
includes Israel. And Rome was, of course, interested in the Middle East for the exact same reasons that we've been interested in the Middle East. It's material wealth. Only for Rome, they were interested in grain and not oil. The city of Rome itself was becoming grossly overpopulated. And so to feed its citizenry, they needed massive imports of grain. Rome had a dream, right? Rome had a big, big dream, and that was a dream of independence. It didn't want to have to be dependent on anybody else. But that dream threw it in a collision course with Israel. Israel, Rome, of course, was not... uh, in any way, people that would worship something like Israel's gods. And Rome, God. And Rome was more powerful than Israel, both militarily, politically, economically, all of it. And so it could bend Israel into submission. But Rome was smart and wise, and it knew that it shouldn't do that aggressively. It knew that times of great unrest and upheaval weren't good times for making money, and so it made sense to let Israel manage its own affairs as much as it could. But the Jews were, see, they were a proud people. And so even a distant landowner wouldn't do for them. The Jews, from the very beginning, knew that their people had a certain identity, that their lives were on a trajectory. They were going in a direction, and it had to do with God, and it didn't have anything to do with the Romans ruling over them. Israel had dreams, and they had their own ambitions. But the ambitions of these two nations created a brutal and fierce dueling crosswind. And Jesus was hurtling towards collision with both of them at a rapid speed. But even these two massive agendas, Rome's and Israel's, is not those two things together don't fully create the storm that would march Jesus closer and closer to Calvary. A hurricane was about to drop on this whole scenario. What the students in the Sunday school class discovered was that there was something more to this story. There's another player in this story that's bigger than Rome and that's bigger than Israel. The students knew that God himself had finally conspired to throw his own son into a rotation, the likes of which the world had never seen and will not see again of course, until Jesus returns. God was coming back to Zion, just like He said He would. But He was doing it in a way no one could have anticipated or expected. The one who owned the cattle on a thousand hills had to roll into Jerusalem on a borrowed colt. And so no one knew the day of their visitation. They're all looking the other way. God's coming back just like they wanted Him to. He's coming back. He's returning to Zion. But they're looking off the other direction. Jesus has been, of course, God incarnate. Bouncing around Israel. Healing people. Giving sight to the blind. Giving hearing to the deaf. Raising the dead. Eating and drinking with people that no one would ever believe God would eat and drink with. He bowed low the proud and exalted 
the humble, all authority in heaven and on earth was given him. But nobody knew but what authority and power were. And so they couldn't know the day of their visitation. So as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, dreams start to die for everybody. Rome's pretensions are about to slip away. And Israel's ambitions are about to die if in a week a new one was going to be born. The triumph of heaven in that moment was going to be a tearful one. It's a bright sadness. And here the word leaps the gap, right? If Jesus marched into Israel as king, but as a king that we did not know, then us too. All of our old allegiances and our search for independence and freedom, it has to die. And our cloaks have to be spread upon Him and upon the ground in front of Him, knowing that we're doing it before the one that the world has always thought was foolish. In full knowledge and hope that the foolish one is actually God Himself, our King. I'll be the first to admit that this story does those things to me, right? This week as I thought about this, I felt all of those things, all of that shatter in my own life. My desire to be independent from God, not to be controlled by Him, but to stand aside Him, that was exposed. My eagerness from, of, to be free from the binding element of a community that calls me to live more like Jesus... I see really quickly the way that I try to run from that. The way that it exposes and shatters the shell I build over my life through worldliness and draws me into God's design, the light of God's design for my life. All of those dreams have to be shattered if something new is going to be reborn. And I knew that Palm Sunday wasn't spreading before me a few new half-hearted affirmations of propositions. That's not what it was asking me to do. It's drawing me into a story, and it's the story of God's saving power through Jesus. And it's a story about that Jesus actually being king, which means it's a story about forgiveness from sin, freedom from my anxiety over sin, deliverance from my own self-obsession. All of those things can happen if Jesus is king. I uh, had this thing happen. This has been a couple months ago. But I was leading Juice and Jesus, um, the little teaching time that we have for our children, uh, ages six and up a couple months ago. And I asked, I opened it up at the end. I just said, would anybody like to close us in prayer? And you know how that goes with children, right? You don't. You rarely get takers but um, this day was different, right? And so Myra Burden actually said, yeah, I'll close us in prayer. And she prayed for a few things. And then she said, and thank you, Jesus, that you are our king. And I thought, I've never, ever in my life agreed with a prayer more. I don't know why that statement that I've always known hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment, but it did. And I said to myself, you know what? Me too. I'm really happy that Jesus is king. Super, super happy that Jesus is our king. And then like an hour later, right, I was downstairs picking up Jesse from Children's. This happened on the same day, and I don't know how this happened. I was uh, 
talking to Jeanette Wingate, and she told me a story about her and Brian. Her and Brian had just been explaining to their oldest daughter, Eliza Ann, about presidents. This is right after the inauguration. And they were telling her what presidents were and what it means to have a new president. And Eliza Ann said, that's all great, but I'm really glad that I don't have to think about any of that because Jesus is my king. And I thought, yeah. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 19. If those little girls hadn't mumbled those truths out on those days, inanimate objects would start shouting. The stones would cry out. The, fields, the trees of the field would clap their hands. And so here's the question for you and for me this morning. Even if you think you've answered it a thousand times, it's new again this morning. Jesus wept over the sin and confusion of those who just in a few days were going to become his biggest enemies. Will you accept and will I accept and acknowledge our complicity in that horrible and horrific agreement? And will you pledge yourself over again? Will you pledge allegiance, very, very imperfect, sinful allegiance to Jesus as your king all over again? See, Jesus could have stayed on the Mount of Olives, right? He could have. He didn't have to ride down that hill. He could have stayed there and just looked with scorn at Jerusalem. And he could have ascended off the earth then, not fulfilling his final mission towards the cross. He could have done all that. And we could do something kind of like that, right? And we could stand apart from God's work in the world and we can look with derision at the church and with scorn at the world. But if we did that, we'd be reenacting another play. We wouldn't be reenacting the one Jesus staged in Luke chapter 19. If we enter Jerusalem with Jesus, we're going to get swept up into reality, like actual reality, painful, messy, confusing reality. And we're only going to survive that reality if we survive it together as a people, as a community. But we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves in the midst of a tearful triumph a bright sadness, and dreams of our own dying so that new ones can be born, ones that are God's and not our own. But I think that we can believe that the fresh wind of the Spirit blows in and through those moments, and it kindles the small, weak ember of our faith and burns it into something new and everlasting. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we love you, and we trust you to do exactly that. We don't know what we're doing, and we don't know how to do that. Our hearts are so fickle, like David said. And we just, we do. We do see your son, and we know the way that we resist him, but this morning we long to follow him, even to take up our, take up our cross and follow him towards Calvary. Will you, by your Spirit, begin to produce that in our heart? Help us to spotlight sin and then shed it off so that we can serve your Son more. In your name we pray. Amen.